All right, we're in Revelation chapter 2, um, the third church. We've talked about the church of Ephesus. We've talked about the church of Smyrna, the persecuted church. And now today we're coming to the church of Pergamos. So let's begin by reading verses 12 through 17 here in Revelation chapter 2. And the word of God reads as follows. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas, my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone. And on the stone, a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Lord, we do have ears this morning. We have physical ears. But we also need spiritual ears to hear what you would speak to us, to this church today. And so, Lord, as we hear what you spoke to that church and what you have spoken to all churches down through the ages by authoring these letters and sending it to them, may we also understand these things as they apply to us. So, Lord, help us to understand. Help us to apply. Lord, your servants are listening. Speak. In Jesus' name, amen. Why are you here? I'm not asking the existential question that everybody asks, you know, for what purpose do I exist, although it's a good question. My question is more directed to why are you here at church? Why are you in this service today? Why are you, if you're joining us online, why did you tune in? Sometimes people go to church motivated by guilt. And if you're here for that reason, then we're grateful that you're here. However, I would like to suggest that's not really a correct motivation. I hope that the reason you're here and that I'm here is because as believers in Jesus Christ or or seekers, you're seeking truth, you're seeking Jesus, you're seeking something. I hope that for, for those of us who know Christ, that you're here because you're hungry, you're thirsty. You want to know the Lord. You want to worship him. You want to be with God's people. Because that's the reason why the church gathers. We've already talked about it briefly in our announcements, the Acts 2.42, coming together under the apostles' doctrine, the teaching of God's word, the breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayer. 
that we might come together and, and learn from one another and be encouraged by one another and be able to minister to one another. You know, church was never designed to be a spectator sport. It was meant to be a place where the church comes together. And in fact, the word church in, in the Bible, in, in the Greek, ekklesia, means the calling together of the saints, the, the, the gathering together of the called out ones, the gathering together of the holy ones. And I ask you that question this morning, why are you here? Because the message in this morning's church, and they're not going to get any easier from here going forward, except the Church of Philadelphia, that there is something that he needs to address in this church, in in the Church of Pergamos, but also by divine appointment today, on May 21st, 2023, something that he wants to address here with us. I don't believe in coincidences from God's point of view. He is in control. And remember, as Jesus dictated these letters through the angel to John, that these letters have sort of a common structure. There's a commission. You know, give the letter to the angel of the church of whichever church it is. And as we've discussed this already We believe that he's saying that the angel, which uh, in this case, the word angel means messenger. You know, and angels, literal angels, don't need letters to tell them what to do. They get it directly from God, right? But churches need it. And so we believe the angel is referring to the pastor or the leader or the leaders of the church. And then there's a character that Jesus brings in a character trait from chapter one and he takes a quality or an asset that was given to us about his his character and his nature. And he says, this particular uh, quality or characteristic applies to this church. This is something you've forgotten about. And then he gives a condemnation except for two churches, excuse me, a commendation. I know your deeds, I I know what you're doing, I know what you're dealing with, I know what you're up against, and he commends them, and and we'll go through that this morning for this church. And then often, uh, five of the seven churches, there's a condemnation, something they're not doing well, something that they need help with, that they need improvement in, an area where they need to focus. And then there's a call excuse me, a correction, then it usually ends with repent or turn or make these changes in your life or in your thinking. Then there's the call, him who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, plural. So him is individual, churches is plural. And so he's speaking to individuals and he's speaking to churches. Then he gives a challenge usually with some, some words like to him who overcomes, I will do this for you. And so he's doing the same thing here this morning to the church in Pergamos or Pergamum, depending on your translation. Interesting to note as we come out of the gate here that the word Pergamos or Pergamum, the the root word, uh, if I say this word, you'll get it, monogamous, polygamous, Pergamos. It means married, The word Pergamos means married. And when we say monogamy, we're talking about uh, two people who are committed to one another, namely one man and one woman. Polygamous obviously means people who have many partners. And of course, this is usually referring to the sexual realm. But the word Pergamos means married. And it's interesting uh, 
as we get into this, right from the get-go, that he's, he's asking this church, whose name means married by their city name, what are you married to? Who are you married to? A few facts about Pergamos. It was the political capital of the Roman province of Asia. It was uh, the first place in the, the region of Asia, or Asia Minor, as we would call it, where a throne to um, Caesar was built that they might worship Caesar. So Caesar worship was sort of uh, implemented outside of the Roman Empire first here in Pergamos. It was a city for culture, for education, for fashion. It was a hip and a happening city. It was one of the few cities that had one of the great libraries of the world, The greatest library of the time was regarded to be in Alexandria, Egypt, with something like 400,000 copies. And remember in those days, there there was no internet, there was no printing press, there was no nothing. The printing press wasn't even invented until the 1500s. So when you talk about a library that had 400,000 books in it, you're talking about handwritten, hand-copied books. Ephesus had a library of about 200,000 Pergamos also had a library of about 200,000. And so this, of course, was a part of the center of learning. If you were learning or studying something, whether it be medicine or law or just some kind of general knowledge, you know, about farming or whatever it might be, you would go to the library. But in those days, you couldn't check them out. They didn't have the Dewey Decimal System. You know, you had to go to the library and you had to study and read. And so often the libraries were places where schools would be held. So Pergamos was this city of culture and education, the city of Caesar worship. It was also an extremely religious city, like many of these cities were, and it had many temples to false gods, to Greek gods, such as, uh, or Roman gods, such, such as Dionysius, Athena, Demeter, Zeus. It had three temples dedicated to the worship of Caesar. And some 50 years before Smyrna won the honor of building the first temple to Tiberias, the city of Pergamos won the right to build that temple, that first temple to Caesar. So there was sort of this competitiveness among the cities even to be the first one to erect that kind of worship in their city. So it was very uh, focused on false worship. One of the things Pergamos was also known for was for the the worship of the deity known as Asclepius. You might know this person or this symbol because today it is the symbol of the American Medical Association. And it's the symbol of that pole with two snakes entwined around it. In fact, as I was looking at this, uh, Googling what, what did this god Asclepius look like and how was he portrayed, His original portrayal was really a staff or a stick with a single snake wrapped around it. In fact, many ambulances today, now you need to know this, you can't unsee it. When you're behind an ambulance, many of them have that that actual authentic Asclepius insignia, which is a single stick with a snake wrapped around it. But then again, most of the doctors and, and whatnot you'll see on their name tags or their badges are certain if you go to the American Medical Association website, you'll see this. It's more of the, the staff with two snakes entwined and usually like little wings at the top that point to this. So it originated in Pergamos. 
through the worship of the god Asclepius. And of course, this is a bit of a, as Satan always does, he perverts the things of God. Back in the book of Numbers, perhaps you remember when the children of God were rebelling against God and God sent snakes to attack them. And as they, when they sinned, they got a snake bite. And, you know, those of us who don't get it, who are dumb, and we keep sinning over and over. And so people kept getting bit over and over. And some people were dying. Some people were getting very sick. And what did the Lord do as, as the people cried out? He told Moses, make an image, a bronze image of a serpent on a pole, serpent meaning a snake. So, and then have it positioned such that when the people sin and they're bitten by the snake or AKA when their sin bites them, that they have to look to the pole. They have to look to the bronze pole. Bronze was a symbol of the judgment of sin and the snake being lifted up, the sin judged. And remember Jesus all the way forward in the New Testament said, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. So that symbol became a symbol of the cross. It was a a forward-looking prophetic pointer to the day that Jesus would come. And yet here, as Satan often does, he takes a symbol that God had, and of course that symbol came about as judgment for sin, and now it's become a Greek God. It's become something we worship. And so this is a part of the fabric of this city. You can begin to see the, the building blocks of what Jesus is addressing as he begins to write to this city. And he says here, these things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Remember back in chapter one, as John was given that vision of Jesus, there were all these qualities. And so Jesus takes one of those qualities and he says, here's what you need. You need, a, you need the sword from my mouth. And remember we talked about there were two kinds of swords talked about in the New Testament. There's the short 18-inch sword for close-in hand combat. That's the sword mentioned in Ephesians chapter 6 where it talks about the armor of God. But this sword, this is called the romphea, the long sword. This, this sword was that big, long battle sword that you would see people wielding and often they would wear it on their back and it would be up to six feet long. And it was said that because of the weight and the size of this sword and the sharpness of the blade, that if they correctly positioned a blow, they could literally split a man in two from the top of his head to his groin, right in half. And you are concerned that your kitchen knives are dull. And so Jesus is saying here, I will bring that sword to bear on your situation. Already I'm not really looking forward to this meeting with Jesus. In verse 13, he says, I know your works. Here's the good part. I know where you dwell. I know where you live. And you guys happen to live where Satan's throne is. People have debated what does this Satan's throne means. Well, it probably means one of two things or perhaps both a little bit later. He, he deals with this issue of saying, you know, first of all, that the, the seat of uh, the Roman ruler was there, and, and so they worshipped the, the Roman ruler Caesar. So, so they had that going on. Then they had all of these Roman and Greek gods that they worshipped. So certainly, this false worship was satanic. And by the way, any worship that worships anything other than the one true God is satanic. 
Maybe you don't realize that. But when we talk about other religions and they worship other gods, they have other things they worship in their religion. From God's point of view, from a biblical point of view, we need to get this straight in our heads because this is a part of what he's addressing. There is only one God. Only one. He has several names, but it's one God. Jehovah, Yahweh, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the three in one. There's only one God. So anyone who worships anyone other than the one true God of the Bible is involved in satanic worship. And anyone who takes the things of the word of God and perverts or twists them, they've now added leaven to the purity of God's word. And they've now made God's word something that it's not. I'm going to have a little video clip a little bit later that is going to shock you about what's being taught in churches. In fact, when you see it, you'll probably say, I'm not surprised because I've seen some of this. But in the context of what we're looking at here, part of what Jesus is dealing with is that, remember, Pergamos means married to. There's a church in Pergamos. He's asking them, what are you married to? And we see in the the subtitle, the heading here, the compromising church. And so this church, while it was a church of Jesus Christ and it was a church that worshiped him, they had begun to, in a sense, make friends with the world. Or maybe as they got saved and they came into the church, maybe they brought with them some of the things that had not yet been uprooted or pulled from their lives. Their lives you know, we're not fully sanctified. I mean, our lives are not fully sanctified until we get to heaven. But when we come to know Christ, there's a change. If any man's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are made new. So there should be a change in our lives. And so he says here in verse 13, I know your works. I know where you dwell. You basically live in Satan's neighborhood. His throne is there. And you hold fast to my name. So in the midst of living in one of the most satanic places, you guys are holding fast to my name. Good job. Did anyone see, I think it was last week, that uh, I forget the name of the society, but basically the society, the, the satanic worship society, held a conference in Boston last week. Satan's throne. And you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith. This is important for us to understand because there is always pressure to compromise. There's always pressure to give in, isn't there? Here's the definition of compromise. It's an agreement to settle differences through concessions. Both sides give a little and bend so as not to offend or alienate the other party. Now, if we're talking about maybe a business contract or something, maybe that's okay. But when we're talking about God's word, when we're talking about the worship of the one true and living God, there are no concessions. There can be no compromise. And I would suggest to you that this is precisely what is happening today in a big way in our society, in our world. What, what's going to happen next month? Anybody know? Gay Pride Month? 
And it's, it's, it's the pressure to compromise, right? Throughout the Bible, here's a few examples of people who were put under pressure to compromise. You may remember in Genesis 39 that Joseph, God was, was working in his life and he had been delivered from evil at the hand of his brothers, but he was now working in Potiphar's house. And so one day Potiphar's away and what happens? His wife comes along and says, I want you to come into the bedroom with me and lie with me. And he said, no, I can't do this. I can't, I can't do this to my God and I certainly can't do this to my master. And so she put an, an inordinate amount of pressure on him to compromise. Thank God he didn't. And because he stood true, he was persecuted, he was prosecuted, he was thrown in jail. Or what about in 1 Samuel chapter 2, where we read about the priest Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Now, Eli was a priest unto the Lord. His job was to minister to the Lord in the presence of the Lord in the temple. And he had these two sons who he, he was supposed to raise in the ways of the Lord and train them to be his assistants. That's the way the lineage went. But as you read there in 1 Samuel chapter 2, you find that anything but that has happened. Both Eli and his sons have completely compromised. They're stealing from the Lord. And they are having illicit relations on the back steps of, of the house of God. And so there's people who were supposed to be people of God who had compromised with the world and had no mark of God on their lives. What about... The children of Israel, this was a perpetual issue, wasn't it? With the surrounding nations, uh, the temptation to intermarry with their women and to worship their gods. What about Samson with Delilah? Remember, Samson was a Nazarite. He had taken a Nazarite vow. He was dedicated to the Lord. But you remember that whole story there in Judges chapters 14 through 16, that he sort of fell in love with Delilah and she was playing with him and she wanted to know what is this, the secret of your strength? And so she kept pressuring him and pressuring him and pressuring him to compromise until finally he told her the secret of his strength was in his hair, which was a representation of his Nazarite vow, which was a representation of his relationship and connection to God. And when they came and they cut off his hair, what happened? He became weak, they took him, they gouged his eyes out and put him on display and said, the mighty Samson, the mighty man of God, look at him. And the most tragic thing, was some of the most tragic words ever uttered in scripture were uttered about him and it said, and he did not know that the spirit of God had departed from him. Compromise. What about David with Bathsheba? the man who wrote most of the Psalms, the Psalter, the hymn book of Israel, a man on whom the spirit of God was, was resting, the man who became the second king of Israel, whom God had lifted up and who, whom God had put in place. And yet on the day when he was supposed to be in battle with his men, he was home looking out across the rooftops and saw this woman bathing and immediately became filled with lust and had to have her took her, lay with her, got her pregnant, and then concocted this whole scheme to bring her husband home, to have him lay with her so that hopefully they could convince people that it was his baby, but that didn't work, so he had the man brought to the front lines and killed. 
In Psalms 32 and 51 are written about David repenting and coming back to the Lord, but David giving in to compromise. What about Judas, a disciple of Jesus, selling him out for 30 pieces of silver? That was compromise. And what about the Corinthian Christians? When you read their letter, especially 1 Corinthians, what's so plain and evident there is that they had compromised with the world and they had allowed the world to come into their church. And it's a very similar situation in my mind in Corinth as we see happening in Pergamos here. And so Jesus says, I know your works. And actually Jesus said this to each church, I know something about you, about your works. And of course it's true of each one of us that he knows our works. He knows what we're doing. He knows what we're doing or not doing for him. But one commentator said it this way, he knows our works even if there isn't much to know. So they held fast to his name. And that means that they did not deny the faith. They, I think of it like a, a ship in a storm. Imagine yourself on the deck of a ship and it's being tossed to and fro and it's just a terrible situation. And the ship is going left and right and up and down and crashing through the waves and you're on the deck of that ship And how do you keep from not getting washed overboard? You find something to hold on to. You find a pole or something and you cling to it for dear life. One one minute your feet are over here and you're out sideways. The next minute you're over here and your feet are out sideways and you're just clinging for dear life. That's what it means when it says, you were holding fast to my name. So they were clinging to the name of Jesus. And there's almost a sense here in which there's a suggestion that that's all you had. You were just clinging to my name and it says, he says there, and you did not deny my faith. Notice how that's worded in, in the New King James is capitalized and did not deny my faith, meaning the faith we have in, in God, the faith we have in Christ. But it's also, remember uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you are saved through faith and that not of yourselves. And we believe that that is referring back to the faith that even he gave us the very faith that we needed to believe him. And so you have not denied my faith. You've not denied the faith that I've given you to believe in me, to trust in me. That's a good thing. Hold on to that, cling to that, cling to my name, cling to the faith. Don't give up. One commentator said this, the peril which ever threatens a church situated in such a city, a place that has the throne of Satan in it, is that it may enter into an alliance with mammon, which is money or wealth, and so pass under the control of Satan. Pergamon, Pergamum or Pergamus was perhaps the wealthiest city of the seven, and there was Satan's throne, the base of his operations, the place which he governed, from which he governed the goings-on of evil in that place. And notice he said there, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr. This is the only place this guy is mentioned. But like so many people, I would put him in the category of unsung heroes. This was a man who clung to Jesus who held on to God's word, who held on to the name of Christ, who held on to the faith. 
even in the days in which he was my faithful martyr. Now, the word martyr in its purest form means witness. In our mind, we tend to go right to death and we associate that with someone who stood for Christ to the point of death. And certainly it became that. But the word martyr means witness. And and we're not going to attach degrees to it, such as a a weak witness, a semi-strong witness, or a very strong witness. Just, he was my witness. And we need to think of it that way. Are we witnesses of him, witnesses unto him? And I think one of the things that, that gets us as Christians in modern society is that when we have an opportunity to speak of Jesus, so often we shrink back and there's this fear within us to speak his name for fear of retribution or persecution or losing your job or whatever it might be. But Paul has this verse in Romans chapter one. Maybe you want to turn there for a moment. And if this is not underlined or highlighted, you probably want to do that. And it's something I try to remind myself of. Romans chapter one, verse 16. Here's how it reads. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it, the gospel, is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Memorize that. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And convince yourself that you, like Paul, like I, like Paul, that this is where I want to be. So that when I'm confronted with the opportunity to speak on behalf of or in the name of Jesus Christ, that I would not shrink back and be ashamed of his name. Now, he does say in the Gospels, he says, if people are ashamed of me and they will not confess me before men, he said, then neither will I confess them before my Father. However, if you confess me before men, then I will confess you before my Father. Why? Because being able to do that, being able to confess him before men, is evidence that there's been a change within us. It's evidence that we worship him alone. Why are you here? Antipas, we don't know anything about him, but he was a faithful martyr. He was a faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. You know, last week in the study of the church at Smyrna, something that And there's so many aspects, you know, it's crazy how much was in four verses. What part of what they experienced in Smyrna, you know, myrrh or crushing, part of their crushing was that in the place where they lived, that in order to make a living, you had to be part of a trade guild. So sort of bringing it to today's world might be sort of like being a part of a union. And that you couldn't work in those particular fields unless you were a part of the guild. Now, part of the guild often meant that what you were doing were making idols. And so when people were getting saved and they came to Christ and they said, look, I can't do this anymore. I have to back out of it. I can't do it. But you also couldn't get a job doing something else. It's not like today where we said, well, 
I lost my job. I'm going to go work at McDonald's for a while until I figure out what I want to do. They couldn't do that. And so people would come to them and say, we'll give you your job back. We'll let you be a part of the guild. We'll let you come back and do what you were doing before if you renounce the name of Christ. But if you won't, then we're going to take everything. And that was a part of what they faced. And here we are uh, in Pergamos, just down the street, 50 miles or so. Antipas had been brought to the place that his witness for Jesus was so put on the line. And he said, I will not deny the faith. I will not deny the name of Jesus that it cost him his life. And what I'm about to say, I say to myself first and foremost before I say it to anyone else. And we've all probably seen these, these movies, right? These terrorist movies and whatnot. But if you were in a situation, you're in a hostage situation, and the terrorist has a gun to someone's head, your husband, your wife, your child, or a knife to their neck, and says, and I don't believe I'm stretching it here or over-dramatizing it, and says, if you renounce the name of Jesus, then I won't kill them. But if you, if, if you, if you won't do it, you're going to watch them die right before your eyes. And here's the question in that moment. Would we say to them, sweetie, I'll see you in heaven? Or would you renounce it because the, the, the emotional drive and that moment of tension is so great that you're saying, I'll just say whatever you want me to say. Just please don't hurt my, my, my family, my loved one. Please don't hurt my children. You see, worshiping Jesus, loving God, he's done everything for us. You see, we were going to hell. Anyone not knowing Christ, not born again, not having salvation, pick your words. Anyone who has not come to Christ is going to hell. So there's only two destinations, humanly speaking. You're either going to heaven to be with God in Christ, or you're going to the great white throne of judgment to make your way down to Gehenna. The flame that never dies. Jesus talked about hell so much in the Gospels. And so when we come to salvation by faith in Christ, when the Holy Spirit comes in, when faith comes in, when we realize who he is and we get saved, and we realize our sins are forgiven, our eternal destiny has been altered forever. I'm not going to hell. I'm going to heaven to be with Christ. I've been redeemed. I've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. I'm forgiven. I'm clean. He's given me everything. All to him I owe. All to Jesus I owe. I belong to him. I am his. He is mine. And it's been such a transformation that I can't help not tell people about him. And if someone says to me, unless you renounce the name of Jesus just so your loved one, and don't underestimate that love, you know, can live. You see, this is, we have to understand, this is where we live, this is where we should live, in the sense that there should be nothing that is greater in our lives than our love for Jesus Christ. 
Not our husband, not our wife, not our kids, not our parents. He has to be the greatest. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall worship the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. Antipas loved Jesus and he was a faithful witness. And he lost his life because he took a stand in the place where Satan dwells. Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You know, on the other end of things, if you're the one with the gun to your head or the knife to your throat and your family's there, hopefully you would be saying to them, don't do it. I'm going to be with Christ. You walk with Christ. You honor Christ. Don't honor me. Honor Jesus. Because that's what it comes down to. Hebrews 12. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, these are people who have gone before, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus. We sang about this. The author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of God or the right hand of the throne of God for us. There's no one else in human history in heaven or earth who could have done that except Jesus. And he did it for you. He did it for me. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. When you do become weary and discouraged, what are you supposed to do? Turn your mind to Jesus. Look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. He says, for you've not yet resisted to bloodshed and you're striving against sin. Now, Antipas did. The people in Smyrna did. And if it ever gets to the place that someone comes to us and says, unless you stop going to that church, unless you stop reading your Bible, unless you renounce the name of Christ, we are going to take everything. We're going to take your home, we're going to take your cars, and you're going to be out on the street. You know, I don't know what it's going to take to get us to that place where we say there is no one more important to me than my Lord. And I just have this image as I'm standing here this morning of the Lord just burning the dross off of our lives because of all the other things we value as more important than him. The stuff. But a few things I have against you Verse 14, because you have there those who hold the Balaam of doctrine, the doctrine of, excuse me, the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. So remember, Jesus is writing to a church and he's saying to them, here's what I have against you. You have there those in your midst, in the church, part of the church, who hold the doctrine of Balaam. Now, what is the doctrine of Balaam? 
Go back to Numbers chapters 22 through 25. And you read about this man, Balaam. Some say he was a false prophet or wasn't a prophet at all, but you go back and you read the story, God was speaking to him. So whatever kind of prophet he was, he was certainly like Jonah, a reluctant prophet, someone who didn't want to do what God had asked him to do. And so it's an amazing story. I went back and I read it yesterday just to make sure I had a right understanding. And so what was happening was this, this King Balak knew of this prophet and he saw the children of Israel, God giving them success and blessing and they were just coming and they were surrounding him and they were gonna destroy his kingdom. They were gonna overtake his kingdom. That's what the children of Israel were doing. They were taking the land by force as God had told them to do. And so he's now coming to, trying to come up with a way to prevent his kingdom from being taken from him and to keep those people, those foreigners, out of his kingdom. So he hears about this guy, this prophet, Balaam, and he sends his posse over there and says, go convince Balaam to come and do my bidding. You will pay him whatever he wants, but I want him to curse those people because it's obvious to me that they're a blessed people. You should go read the story, it's amazing. But the long and the short of it is this. God would not allow Balaam to curse the people. In fact, when Balaam went in before the Lord and he sacrificed to the Lord and said, Lord, what do you want me to do? He says, don't you dare speak a word against those people. Those are my people. And anytime he opened his mouth, even if he wanted to prophesy otherwise or speak otherwise, what came out of his mouth was praise. What came out of his mouth was the word of God. What an amazing story as you read it, that even though in his heart he wanted to say disparaging things about the people of God, the spirit of God controlled him and said, no, you will only speak what I tell you to speak. It's an amazing story. But it got to the place where Balaam kept saying to the king, I can't do it. God won't let me do it. And he said, but here's what I can do. I'll tell you the secret. I'll tell you how you can get in. I'll tell you how you can worm your way in and subversively cause them to fail. And he said, what's that? He said, well, send your beautiful women over there. Have them go in and wear their skimpy clothes and act in a seductive way. And then when you, you, you lure the men in, when you say, hey, come on into my bedroom and say, look, these are the gods we worship, these sexual gods, and we'll do this and that to you, things that your wives don't do for you. And we'll just, we're gonna do this thing, we're gonna make all your fantasies come true. And so that's what happened. And Balaam gave the kryptonite, if you will, to Balak for the children of Israel And they put a stumbling block before the children of Israel that caused them to sin. Now remember Jesus said, just to put this in perspective, he says, if anyone causes one of my little ones to stumble, it would be better if a millstone were hung around his neck and he was cast into the sea. Remember that? Balaam did exactly what Jesus said not to do. And he he put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Now he's saying there are people there in your church who are subversively doing this. They're saying, you know what? That's all good stuff about God and whatnot, but you can't be a prude. 
You got to have some fun. You got to have some pleasure in your life. In fact, the culture at that time was such that, as it was in many of these cultures, like Ephesus, like Corinth, that it would be unheard of that young men wouldn't be having relations with temple prostitutes. It was just a fabric of their society. It was something they did. And so Jesus is looking at the church saying, that stuff has come into the church. Not only have you brought it with you, but there are some in the church who hold to this doctrine, who haven't given it up. They've come in and they're masquerading as saints, saying that they're saved, but secretly they're practicing these things. So they hold to this doctrine. Now, it's interesting that the name Balaam means Lord of the people. And he also said in verse 15, that thus you also have, in addition to the doctrine of Balaam, you hold, those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Now, we saw this earlier, but Nicolaitans, Nico coming from the word Nike, to rule, and the laity to rule over the people. And certainly, uh, this had begun to happen in the church. Remember, Jesus told his disciples, don't lord it over people like the Gentiles do. You're to be servants. He who would desire to be the greatest among you, let him be your servant. But now what had begun to creep into the church was this doctrine or this idea that people needed to be ruled. And in like manner to what Balak did in trying to rule over the people or certainly rule over his people through the deception of Balaam, thus the doctrine of the Nicolaitans is very similar, creating a hierarchical separatism within the the church. Another person said that the word Nicolaos literally could mean to conquer the people. So now this is creeping into the church and Jesus is coming to this church and he's saying, you know, this is weird. You guys love me. You hold to my name. You're faithful witnesses. You have Antipas there who laid down a great example for you. But on the other side of the aisle over here, you have people who are bringing in the doctrine of Balaam and they're doing these things and they're drawing people away from Christ and they're introducing these practices to the body of Christ. And now in a sense, Satan has joined the church. And now the doctrine of the church, the pure teaching of God's word has been perverted. And it's at this point that I want to show you this video. So before you can bring it up, but don't hit play yet. I want to set it up for you. Some of you might get mad at me and I'm okay with that. The guy who's teaching, this guy is Paul Washer. You can go look him up. I've listened, I haven't listened to everything he's done, but I've listened to enough to know that he's a solid Bible guy. Now, what someone has done is taking him preaching, and they've, what he's preaching on is this issue of the doctrine of demons and how people are perverting the scriptures in today's church. And he's gonna, they're going to flash up there people that you may know. Now, keep in mind, these are sound bites and whatnot. Are they taken in context? Those are all good questions. But as you see, this is like maybe two minutes. Uh, You can see there, wolves in sheep's clothing. Go ahead and play it, and then we'll come back. And you listen to me. Any doctrine. 99.9% of people are not bad people. Any principle. 
the more you give to me, the more I give back to you. Any law. And say, you see, God, I have got my receipt from my sewing, and now I have a need, and I'm cashing in my receipt. Any teaching. It's always been in you. It's always been in you. That is placed beside the gospel. Whatever you do right now, don't you stop tithing. Are given more emphasis than the gospel. Make the vow now and then obey the Lord and sow that seed and watch what God will do with you. I want to hear about your miracle. No matter how harmless it may be in itself, immediately turns in to a doctrine of demons. And you so to illustrate the point, <clears throat> we have these things going on in the church today. Prosperity doctrine teachers, people who are saying, if you give to me, I'll give back to you. And, and because you're blessing me, I'll bless you. We have people saying, you know, you've been sowing your seed or whatever through giving or whatever, but now you can turn to God and demand that God cash your receipt and meet your need. Like we can command God to do what we want him to do. And this is not the sexual immorality part, but there's plenty of that to go around. There's, there's people, if you've been watching the news in the past couple of years, people in churches who have been indicted and taken down because pastors were sleeping with multiple people in churches. These are people who are supposed to be the guardians of the sheep, the pastors of the sheep, the people who are teaching and feeding the sheep, and yet they are fleecing the flock. And so what's being addressed here with the doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans is that now the church is being perverted. It's being drawn aside from the truth. It's being drawn aside from the simplicity and purity of devotion to following Christ. And the Lord, as he says here, I hate that. I hate that this is happening in my church. And he says to them in verse 16, repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So the idea, of course, is of repentance is to stop what you're doing, to cease what you're doing and to turn now, repent is a unique word that rep- applies to, to God, to Bible, to the scriptures, to our relationship with Christ, that when we become aware that we are wrong, that we need to stop and we need to turn and walk 180 degrees in the opposite direction. And Jesus is saying, I'm telling you, church at Pergamos, and anyone who has ears to hear, if you have something that you're doing that is not pleasing to God, you need to stop. And he says, or else I'll come to you quickly. Now Jesus is saying, I'm going to have to make a personal visit to deal with this one. And I will fight against them. Now if Jesus is going to fight against people in his church who are standing against him, who's going to lose, who's going to win? It's pretty simple. I will, stand, I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Here's the idea. Jesus has that long sword. He has the word of God. And we know the, the sword he's using is the word of God. And here's the thing. When Jesus, who from the beginning was God and, and was the word and became the word and dwelt among us, 
And He is the one through whom the Holy Spirit being sent out has given the word to His people. When Jesus speaks His word to His church, His church will have no recourse. It doesn't matter if you agree. What Jesus says goes. And if He says, I've judged thusly with respect to your thought, your thinking, your actions, your practices, then there is only one choice. And it's either repent and return to the Lord or be judged in such a way that you're taken away, taken out. It's a warning that Jesus will come and exercise righteous judgment to anyone who refuses him. One person said this, it's more important to fear the sword in Jesus's mouth than the sword that the Romans or anyone else has. And he finishes by saying, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Remember, these letters were all written and gathered together, but they were meant to go to all the churches. There weren't just seven letters sent to seven different churches and the other church didn't know what was happening. No, these letters were sent to all the churches so that they all might hear whatever was being addressed in that church over there, that there might be something that was applicable to them over here. So to he, he who has an ear to hear, there's the individual part. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, the plural part. This letter's written to the leaders, to the pastors. And this was what was to be communicated. And the leaders and the pastors were to speak the word that Jesus gave them. And notice what he says to him who overcomes. Here's a promise. It's not all bad news. It says, if you'll overcome, if you'll repent, if you'll turn. I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. Now remember the manna in the Old Testament when the children of Israel were out there in the wilderness and God was sustaining them, two to three million of them camping in the wilderness. God had delivered them from the hand of Pharaoh and from Egypt. And day by day, God, he told them, he says, in the morning, you're gonna get up, you're gonna see this manna out, you're gonna go gather just what you need for that day. I'm providing it, it's gonna be your sustenance, it's gonna be your nourishment. It's going to be a complete super multivitamin of food when you eat it. It's going to be awesome. And he would provide water to them there in the wilderness. And he says, listen, if you'll overcome, in other words, if you'll repent, if you'll come to me, listen to the promise. I'm going to give you some hidden manna. I'm going to give you spiritual sustenance. You're going to have fellowship with me. It's going to be the sweetest you've ever known. And I will give him a white stone. And on the stone, a new name. People have debated for many years, what does this white stone mean? Some have said, you know, it refers to the acquittal in a legal case. And so you've been acquitted and you've been given a white stone instead of a black stone. The black stone would be conviction. The white stone would be freedom. That the white stone could be a symbol of victory in an athletic contest. Or it could have been an expression of welcome Uh, by a host to a guest as they came into his house. But it seems clear that this is a reward coming from the Lord to those who have overcome and who have repented and who have decided to walk with Jesus. And he says that on that new stone, in addition to this beautiful thing of the hidden manna that he's going to give to those who turn to him and return to him, then I'm going to write a new name. 
And elsewhere, he'll tell us a little bit later that, that each of us is going to be given a new name. So whether you like your name or not is not the issue. But he's going to give us a name, and I believe, this is personal opinion, that that name is somehow going to be consistent with, with our character and who he's created us to be. And when he gives us that name and that instant, when we see that stone and we see that name, we're going to be like, yeah, it just fits. And notice that that stone, that name, it's going to be acceptance. You know, we're saved by the blood of the Lamb. And if you believe in Christ, you know you're going to be with him in heaven. You know that. But this is, this is kind of like taking it a step further, isn't it? It's like, oh, when you get there, when you come in, Jesus is going to give you a stone. It's going to have a name on it. It's going to be his pet name for you. You know, we have names we give to each other in our homes, right? Babe, schnookums, sweetie, muffin, whatever. If you're hungry, call your wife muffin. I don't know. You always associate her with food because she feeds you. But the name that God gives us, It's going to be sweet to find that out. So you see, God is gracious. God is not a big meanie up there. He's not waiting to slap your hand. But he's very serious about holiness, isn't he? He's very serious about his children. He's jealous for us. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. His disciples answered him, how can, how can one satisfy these people here in the wilderness with, with this small amount of bread? Jesus said, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And what did Jesus do? He prayed over it, broke it, and distributed it, and he fed 5,000 from a muffin. Didn't he tell us to say in what we call the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread? In John 6, therefore they said to him, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you, that you are the Christ? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert, and as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true, uh, the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is he speaking of himself, who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. You know, with Ephesus, they had left their first love. They had good things going for them. They were busy. They were a working church. But they seemed to have had a legal relationship with God and not a loving relationship. In Smyrna, they were being persecuted. They were being tested. There was satanic oppression, but Jesus had nothing to rebuke them for. He just said, you keep doing what you're doing and you will receive the crown of life. Pergamos, 
purification from compromise and falsehood. Not, you know, to stop allowing the doctrine of demons to come in. Don't allow spiritual and moral compromise. Looking to man and man's structures rather than looking to God himself. Don't be led astray. Don't be led away. Don't compromise. Don't make that decision and take those little steps because they're leading you on a path away from him. You see, there's only one path and it's called in the Bible, the straight and the narrow. Narrow is the way and few there be that find it. But we have these wandering hearts and we want to go off and see what's over there and what's over there and enjoy some of this and enjoy some of that. And he says, no, your path is this path. Not that path, not that path. This is your path. Will you walk in the path that he leads you in? Will you stay close to him? Will you abide in Christ? Will you eat of the hidden manna that he gives you? Will you stay away from compromise? Because the only way to stay away from compromise is to stay close to him. Agreed? Lord, thank you. We love you. We bless you. And as we come to your table right now, we partake and we remember who you are and what you've done. We long to be with you, Lord. We long to be free from the sin and the shame and the struggle. So Lord, today, would you give us, your children, the power, the conviction, the strength to let go of, as it said in Hebrews, the the sin and the, the things which so easily entangle and ensnare us. Lord, maybe you want to set people free today from whatever sin you're speaking to them about right now. Whatever sin is keeping them from you, from coming to you, from opening your word, from getting alone with you, from receiving that manna, then Lord, would you just help every one of us, Lord, right now? In the weakness of our flesh, Lord, would you give us strength Would you free us? I I pray, Lord, that there would be bondages broken here today as we come to your table, that there would be restoration that happens, that you would just bring healing. Lord, so often we want to go and we want to just understand everything. But I know on the day when we see you, it says, basically, we're going to become like you because we're going to see you as you truly are. And all those questions about what and why and how, they're just going to melt away in your presence. There will no longer be a need to try and understand the things that have happened, good, bad, or indifferent, because we will be in your presence. And Lord, would you, would you do that for us now? Lord, would you renew for us this morning the grace, the love, and the mercy, the, that first love, God. Lord, help us to turn back to you and to walk away from the stuff, from the draw of this world, from the pull to turn to the one true and the living God. May there be, Lord, in our lives, we pray, no compromise. Please help us, God. Lord, for those here listening today, maybe who don't know you, they've never trusted in you, I just ask very simply that in this moment that you would save them and that they would believe in you, that they would turn from idols to serve the living and the true God. Lord, do that, we ask you, we pray. In Jesus' name.
Amen.